It's Daily Thunder, the truth of Jesus Christ dished out live every morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado with a bit of manly grit and gusto. Find out more at live.ellerslie.com. Now, here's Eric Lutie. Well, guys, uh, this is a, a very significant message, and so I, I just want to start out with prayer. Significant for me. I don't know if it's significant for other people. It's significant for me, just what God is working in me right now, and it's just what's coming out through this. And so I just want to pray as we begin and just ask God to lead. Father, I just declare my dependence on you and that I don't just need you, I, I want you. And I, I love to need you. It's not a bad thing that I need you. I, I, I love that fact. And I love the fact that I am unable and ill-equipped in and of myself to do this, but that I need you. I love the way you have made us. You have made us to need you, to depend upon you. And Lord, I want to do that depending today. And I desire that what comes forth out of me today would be rich, would be powerful, and would impact uh, those that are listening and Lord Jesus, I just pray that the words in which they are crafted and which they come together would be led of you and that you would help me in this. Lord, we trust you. It's in the precious name we pray. Amen. So uh, for those of you that have been following, this is, uh, this is my conclusion to a four-part mini-series. Uh, my mini-series is titled Reminders from Joshua Harris. And uh, just to catch anyone up that's just poking their head into the, the podcast or the live stream today. Uh, if you don't know who Joshua Harris is, uh, he's, he's been a friend of mine. That's at least what I would have uh, called him if you'd asked me uh, right now, and I still would say that. If, if Josh called me up right now, I would, I would love to talk with him. I'd love to catch up, and I would love to uh, serve his soul. And so, uh, but a very significant and important leader in the Church of Jesus Christ who has uh, publicly uh, declared that he is renouncing his faith in Christ and divorcing his wife. And his marriage was a very significant marriage. It was a symbolic marriage of a marriage built in purity and in a different approach than the, the world would typically take to building a relationship. And so as a result, there's a tension in this, especially since the platform that Leslie and I have had for so many years is similar or it's akin to what Josh's was. And so we've shared a similar stage, if you want to say it that way, for years of our life, about 25 years. And uh, so walking through this has been very difficult and painful for many people in the body of Christ. And some people didn't even know who Joshua Harris was. But at the same time, anytime a leader in the Christian community uh, sort of melts before our eyes, it causes all sorts of questions to come out. And uh, in this particular situation, it's been a plethora of questions that have uh, sprung to the surface. And so that's uh, some of the things that I've been laboring uh, through in the past few weeks to say, okay, Lord, what can I do to begin to address some of these? Uh, how, can you, how can you turn this evil into good? And Lord, what, what role could I play in that? And so that's, that's where this little series comes in because one of the terms that I gave it uh, when I first launched into the series was precious reminders from Joshua Harris because they really are, precious. Uh, they are sweet reminders. These are things that God wants to bring to the surface in a time like a 9-11 when towers fall 
people start calling all their relatives and saying, I just want you to know that I love you. I haven't said that for a long time, but I want you to know I love you. When you go through any tragedy or trauma in the body of Christ even, it causes us to freshly remember the most important things. And so that's what this little mini-series has been. And so this one's called Wearing the Dunce Cap. Uh, When I say the word dunce cap, it has a negative connotation to it. It's because it's, it was always intended to have a negative connotation uh, to it when it started being used and it started being wielded for the purpose that we understand. In other words, when I grew up, I don't know if it's common today in, in schools to use the term, but even when I was young, they used to talk about uh, sitting in the corner uh, with your nose to the wall and wearing the dunce cap. In other words, that was the symbol of the recalcitrant, incorrigible schoolchild that was disobedient and, you know, was against the flow of the class and therefore he should be separated and wear the dunce cap. And it was a major put down. A dunce is an idiot for a a, a good synonym. A dunce is a fool. A dunce is someone who really doesn't have a good mind. Uh, Their mind is warped and disturbed and they're lacking intelligence quotients. Uh, So, it's interesting because the history of the dunce cap is very different than what most of you would expect. And so here I'm, I'm actually saying that one of these great reminders from Joshua Harris is wearing the dunce cap. What does that mean? I would say, and this is before I share with you the backstory to the dunce cap, I would say that I have chosen in my life to wear the dunce cap on purpose. Yeah, I know what it looks like to the world, but I've chosen to do that. And this whole situation with Joshua Harris has reminded me afresh that I need to ratify in my soul where I stand. I can't be wishy-washy. I can't attempt to appeal to the world and have the world's applause at the same time live for Christ. I have to choose which way I'm going. Am I going with the world or am I going with Christ? You could say, why can't you just sort of straddle that fence, Eric? Yeah, you can't do that. And that's the tension. The word of God is very clear on this point. Are you with me or are you with the world? Are you with light or are you with darkness? There's no half-light in the kingdom of heaven. Who are you with? And the kingdom of heaven looks buck-toothed to this world. It looks wrong to this world. And that's why I've oftentimes called it the upside-down kingdom. Everything about God's kingdom is just upside-down to the world. And when we choose Christ, we are choosing to go against the grain. It's interesting because Joshua... Harris has been bringing up this thing called the purity culture. And, you know, I've been in this quote-unquote purity movement for 25 years. And he's using the term the purity culture. And it's it's not a positive term. Sort of like dunce cap. It's not a positive thing. It's it's a put-down. And what's interesting is I'm going to separate out two different cultures here today. You have the cool culture and you have the purity culture. If you're a part of the purity culture, you're on the outs, okay? You're not in with... uh, with the way the world is going, where the, way, where the world is headed. You know, we're, we're not into this whole purity culture thing. We're into the cool culture. And if you're, if you're a Christian that's really awake today, you recognize that, okay? I mean, you, you don't need to be hardline and believe the, the Bible to actually mean what it says. You can have a more fuzzy interpretation of it. And you can, as, as a result, be cool in the world's eyes, at the same time, be a Christian. And that's where the danger lies. So the history of the dunce cap. We go back to uh, oh, the 1200s, and you have a guy named John Duns. 
Now, his name was spelled D-U-N-S, but you, they would have pronounced it Dunce. And so that's actually where it comes from, is a guy named John Dunce. And what's cool is that, uh, I shouldn't use the word cool uh, in this message in that way. What is interesting, fascinating, is that uh, John Dunce and William Wallace were, what was it? It was just years apart, I don't remember, in age, and like a few miles removed from each other. So it's like they're living within each other's generation, which is extremely interesting to me because Ellerslie is the birthplace of William Wallace. And so we're right down the street from Dunceville, basically. I mean, that's one of the, a good way of saying it. And uh, so John Dunce uh, is, and this is going to be a little shocking at first, especially with what you know about the Dunce cap, but John Dunce was considered one of the most intelligent, if not the most intelligent man on earth during his lifetime. Isn't that an irony? So here we have the term dunce cap, which means stupid, and John Dunce was considered the most brilliant man alive on earth uh, during his generation. In fact, during the entire Middle Ages, he would be considered one of the top minds within the top three minds of the entire Middle Ages. Okay, so even 400 years after his death, he is considered the pattern for academic excellence. The ironies in this are so extreme. So what happened? 400 years after, there's still people walking around wearing pointy caps. Yes, as awkward as it is to acknowledge, John Dunce wore a pointy hat. You know why? Because to him, it was a symbol of something, like a finger pointing upward, and it was declaring, you want to know where all knowledge and all understanding come from? It comes from the creator of the heavens and the earth, and his name is Jesus Christ. John Dunce taught something called the primacy of Christ. In other words, it all comes back to Christ. If you understand Christ, you understand all things because he's the creator of all things. You want to get familiar with the world here? You want to understand what he created? You want to have good knowledge, academic knowledge? We'll get to know him. That's what a dunce was. So you have the dunces that have been following him for 400 years and they ran smack into the buzzsaw of the Enlightenment period where there was a shift from putting God at the center of academics to putting man, it's called humanism, at the center of academics, where, no, God is not the center of the universe, man is, and we worship man and man's knowledge, man's ability. It was like a return to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, okay? And this is the Enlightenment period, and what did they begin to do but persecute the dunces? And so they mocked the dunces, and anyone that was wearing a pointy hat was an idiot. You follow me? We had a separation of culture. We had those that were wanting to be cool, wanting to be man-centered, wanting to get the approval of man, and we had the, those that would stand even to their dying breath as a dunce. So, wearing the dunce cap. This is a fresh reminder from Joshua Harris. One thing that's obvious in watching the trajectory of where he's going is he has thrown the dunce cap down and he has stomped on it publicly. And he says, I want to have nothing to do with that. Meanwhile, we pick up the damaged dunce cap that he, stood, that he stepped on and trounced on and stick it back on our heads and say, here I stand. I am with Jesus. So the idea of cool. So even the word cool itself is extremely fascinating in light of what the Bible teaches. Okay, So listen to this definition. Cool is a temperature between hot and cold. I know I'm not really teaching you anything, right? You know this, but just think about this. Cool is a temperature between hot and cold. It is not ardent or zealous, not angry, not fond. So if you're cool, that means you're not 
passionate about something. You're not feisty. You're not hot. You're, you're, you're calm. You're not excited by passion of any kind. It is indifferent. Not retaining heat or light. To cool means to become less hot. To lose heat, to lose the heat of excitement or passion. To become less ardent, angry, zealous, or affectionate. To become more moderate. Whew. So were you wanting to be cool? In other words, what we see is Josh Harris becoming cool. And ironically, that's one of the best descriptions of it. The guy, I don't know how he transferred from being the guy that kissed dating goodbye to being the LGBTQ poster boy. I mean, he has literally somehow made the transition, guys, from idiot dunce cap wearing guy to cool, socially popular guy. That's an amazing thing. Feet, by the way, I don't know that I could do that. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, just try and imagine Eric Ludy being the cool guy. It's like, yeah, you know, posting things on Instagram, and you know, maybe I could grow a beard, and maybe not grow a beard. I can't grow a beard, but uh, I, I technically I've never tried. I just have these horrifying thoughts of this patchy beard, so I never have really tried. But you know, I could, I could maybe try. And, and, and everyone that knows me would be like, no, Eric, don't even try. Please don't. It's not going to work for you. <clears throat> So I'm going to go to the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verse 16. Now I'm going to replace the word lukewarm, which we would all agree is cool, right, with the word cool. Because you are cool, says Jesus, I will vomit you out of my mouth. He wants hot or cold. You choose. Don't try and be in the middle. Don't try and be cool. When Christians try and be cool, they are distasteful. In the kingdom of heaven, God wants hot or cold. So let this be a reminder to all of us. Let's not go in this direction. It's okay. Pick up the dunce cap off of the dirt. I recognize it has been stomped on. Pick it up. Put it on. And put it on boldly. There's cool and there's uncool. The amusing conjecture of a modern day Christian leader. So this is a real story. This goes back, uh, what, around nine years ago, maybe eight, year, eight nine years ago. Uh, Grace, I'm not sure if you remember this story, but uh, it was a Christian leader out in uh, the East Coast. I'll just give a generalization. And uh, he specializes in uh, image improvement for Christians because, you know, a lot of Christians don't come across cool and so this guy specializes in making Christians cool. So you can just imagine how well I would get along with him, right? You know, especially with this message. Just imagine him hearing this message. He'd be so offended by this message. And so we had a group of uh, Ellerslie students that were out at his church doing something. And they were doing something in regards to orphans. And uh, so he sort of got to know them when they were there. And he was giving them some advice, uh, and he's guy, he, he was saying, you know, look, guys, uh, you're just, you, how can I say this? You're just not cool. Uh, you see my son over there? He's cool. And so my son is going to marry someone who's cool because he's cool. Cool people marry cool people. But uncool people marry uncool people. Okay, now, by the way, he's right. That's what's interesting is I'm not going to argue what he's saying. He's right. But the way he's saying it, it's inferring that there's something wrong. And so he actually encouraged these guys to distance themselves from this organization that they were a part of called Ellerslie. Uh, he's like, yeah, Ellerslie just, they seem rather uncool. 
and they seem sort of like homeschooler types. That was, that was his description. So anyone who's homeschooling out there, you should be offended by that statement. That's, that's lumping homeschooling and uncool together in one little phrase. I mean, that's, that's something to, I mean, you should, should you be offended? Well, maybe as Christians, we, we shouldn't get offended. We should forgive. So here's the summary. Cool people marry cool people, and uncool people marry uncool people. You might want to put a little distance between you and Ellerslie. I mean, I don't know much about them, but the feeling I get is that there are a whole bunch of uncool people, you know, homeschooler types. You know, I'm choosing right now to take that as a compliment, okay? That's how I'm taking it. I, I, I just really appreciate, thank you. Thank you that we have just been described as uncool. You know, I, I, I have been cool in the past. I know it's hard for any of you to imagine me being cool or even trying to be cool, I came out of the same culture, and I understand what this guy's saying, and I know the pressure of desiring a popular uh, opinion polls to be, be high for me. The unspoken rule, the cool gather with the cool, thusly the cool do not gather with the uncool. So have you picked up on this in your life, that the more you go after Jesus, the more you are potentially damaging your reputation with the world? I felt it at a very high level. The fear of being found uncool, paranoia of being found unattractive. Now, this is a big deal in my life. If I could talk about one of the dying processes in my life, it's this. I want to be found attractive by the culture. I want people to think of me as having it together. I want them to be impressed with me. I mean, isn't that what everyone desires, or is that just me? This is how I popped out of my mother's womb. I popped out of my mother's womb with a desire to placate, to, to make everyone know that, hey, I'm with you, I'm with you. I, I don't, to side with Jesus and to lose the good opinion of the culture, whoa, this touched on a very center point in my life. So my attempts at cool, I, I've done all sorts of things. I don't know that we should go into them. They're, they'd be more humorous than anything else. But we all have had our attempts at cool. I've had my attempts at cool. I used to have a strut. You know, I don't remember what it looked like, but you know, you have a little swagger and the way you move, the way you lean against the cat, the way you even stand in church. I remember thinking about it. If you just stand like this in church, as opposed to the hip off to the side when you stand, there's just a difference between, you know, that, that's a dunce right there. You, stand, you need to have a off to the side. And that gives a, a look, a posture of, you know, suaveness. And I used to have a deep bassy voice. How you doing? Do you see the difference between that? If I go from this voice right here to, hey, how you doing? You see that? It just transforms me. I go from dunce to cool, just, just like that. I used to, I spent a long time in front of the mirror when I was young, which is very awkward to consider. But, I mean, you study, you're trying to figure out how to make this thing look better, okay, and to look cool. And so you, you figure out what the popular things are with hair, for instance, and at the time, there was a movement of combing your hair straight back and then parting it down the middle and then feathering it. Oh, if I, if, if I ever see a picture of me with that, I throw it away, okay? It's just like, it's out, it's out of here. I can't even show my kids that. This is so bad. I mean, looking back, it looked so bad, but at the time, it was cool. So you get it in that, and it was feathered, okay? So I don't know if you guys know what feathered uh, hair looks like, but it was really cool. And uh, that's what we even called it, feathering. And uh, so it's like, and then you go, you know, with all of the uh, hairspray, you lock that feathering in place. 
and then you have the, the cool swagger. And then I used to have my arms bow-legged like this. You know, it's sort of a hawk, because I saw Arnold Schwarzenegger walking around like that. And then I realized, it was a dark day in my life when I realized that the reason his arms were out like that, sort of that bow-legged style, is because he had muscles. Uh, so, you know, we, we've had these different moments, and maybe you were immune to this desire to be cool, but I, I sure did go through it. I had a dream. This is right, uh, I want to say, right after I was married, somewhere in the first four years, and I remember just God touching on this sensitivity because the more I had progressed in standing for his name, the harder it was for me socially. And I wasn't used to being treated the way I was being treated. And I remember I just was like, God, can't I be attractive to the world and follow you? I mean, it, was, it wasn't like an out loud question because I knew the question didn't sound good. But it's like, God, isn't there some happy medium here? Why do I have to look doofish to the world to follow you? And uh, I remember I had this dream and I was in a stadium. And the stadium, it wasn't just the, the, the seats in the stadium that were full. It was all the, the, the field, like it was a football stadium. All the field was covered with people. And you know what? It was all girls. The whole stadium was full of girls. And I got set right in the middle. And with one voice, they basically all cried out, disgusting. And looking at me, and I woke up, and it was like horrifying to me that an entire generation of femininity would consider me disgusting. It was really interesting for me to work through. It's like, oh God, please, no. Eric, would you be willing? Oh, I, I, God, d d yes. My, my choice is yes. In other words, this, what I'm saying is reminders from Joshua Harris, the sweet reminders through this process, as he has chosen the cool culture, Eric, who are you with? Are you with me, or are you wanting to placate that crowd? Lord, I'm sticking on my dunce cap afresh this morning. I'm walking out into this world boasting of the fact that I know the God of the universe, and even though I look buck-toothed in doing it, so be it. This is for your glory. The art of branding. You ever heard of branding? It's a big word in marketing, right? So it's convincing the world that you are part of the cool culture. So when you're branding your product, you don't want to brand it to look dumb, to look dunce-ish. You want to brand it to look cool. What, what brand is ever going to be effective in the world if it looks bad, right? So the whole idea of branding is to make it look cool. So convincing the world that you're a part of the cool culture, you understand the cool, you drive the cool, you smoke the cool, you drink the cool, you listen to the cool, you spend your Friday nights at the cool, and you know the language of the cool. Yeah, yeah kind of like that. So is it time for a rebranding of Jesus? Because let's all admit it, Jesus is not cool. So does he need a rebranding? After all, he is not a part of the cool culture. He doesn't talk cool, doesn't look cool, and doesn't live cool. So does he need to be rebranded? You know, there's an entire segment of the church that is attempting to rebrand Christianity. Rebrand Jesus and make him hip. It just doesn't work. Jesus isn't going along with it. The brand of Jesus. You know that there's actually something in Scripture that would be called the brand of Jesus? You see, when we think of a brand, we don't think of what a brand really is. A brand is like, you know, a hot poker into the side of cattle. That's a brand. And you know that we are given a brand, it's called the stigma. And so bearing the stigma, I bear in my body the stigma, the marks of the Lord Jesus. That's what Paul said. 
he has a stigma. What's that? It's the brand of Jesus upon his body. Well, what is that? That's his wounds. That's his trauma. That's the sufferings that he has endured because he has stood. He's put a dunce cap on his head and stood in front of the world and said, hey, people, I want to call you to Jesus. And they've beaten him up. Time and time again, they stoned him. <laughs> they they you know, put him under the lash. I mean, this guy has gone through it. Why? Because he stood for Jesus. So the word stigma is a mark pricked in or branded upon the body. To ancient oriental usage, slaves and soldiers bore the name or the stamp of their master or commander branded or pricked, cut, into their bodies to indicate what master or general they belonged to. Whoa. We understand that cattle get that uh, seared into their side. But did you know that's the concept of what we are? We're bond slaves of the living God and we bear the mark, marks of Jesus upon us. People should be able to come up to us and say, oh, so are you with him? And they could just lift up our shirt and see the brand there, right? It's, it's like, it should be obvious. You know, it's interesting because I don't really like talking about like mark of the beast and things like that, but that's the stigma of the beast. In other words, there's a, there's a mark of the world upon you and there's a mark of Christ. Which one are you wearing? Which one? Because you're going to wear something. You're going to have a mark. You belong to someone. You are a slave to something. Is it to the world or is it to Jesus? And so we just need to evaluate that afresh in this process. The brand of Jesus. Okay, so you know what Jesus' brand is? This, is? this is really powerful. Totally uncool. Could you imagine the commercials? And you want to be totally uncool too? Come to Jesus. It's like, what kind of sales pitch is that? Come and die. Come and pick up your cross. And you will suffer tribulations and trials of many kinds. Come, come. That's a terrible marketing scheme. And you will find life forevermore. You see, I see something so beautiful in Jesus that the world doesn't see. The world stares and they see dunce cap. They see doofish. They see buck teeth. I see beauty. I see glory. I see magnificence. What's the difference? Why is it that I see the grandeur and they don't? Well, it's a gift. It's a gift of grace. God has worked in my life and opened my eyes to see something. What do I do with that? What do I do when I see the beauty of Jesus and then I realize the world isn't seeing it? And if I follow after that beauty, I know what they're going to think. Because they're not seeing the beauty. Well, this is a tricky one. Welcome to Christianity. You see, we see something, we're awakened to something, we must follow. But to follow means we have to say adios, goodbye, to the world. Ah! The all-important refusal, saying no to the cool. Now, this is a powerful scripture right here in Hebrews 11. By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasure of Egypt. For he had respect under the recompense of the reward. Oh, there's so much happening in this one scripture. I mean, this is so powerful. His faith, and Moses sees something. He sees the grandeur of God Almighty. This guy grows up in the cool. He grew up in Pharaoh's palace. He is a son of Pharaoh's daughter. He is in the right lineage now by adoption to actually be a pharaoh, to rule worlds. I mean, this is, 
this is the strongest uh, nation on earth at the time. It's Egypt, the wealth of Egypt, the, the academic knowledge of Egypt. And he has a right to it. I mean, he has access to all of this. And it says that he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God. Who in their right mind would give up that for affliction? Moses did. You follow the lineage of Christian history and you're going to recognize those that follow Jesus give up the world in exchange for the fullness of life in Christ. They esteem the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. It's an amazing statement. A reproach is greater riches? How how does that work? So the word to deny, refuse, disregard, reject, or forego is aperneomai. And so we see this word used over and over in the Greek in the New Testament. This is what Moses was doing when he was refusing uh, to be Pharaoh's daughter. When he was declining that privilege, he's functioning. He's he's doing the operation of aperneomai. So you must refuse something. You must aperneomai. You have to refuse something. Will it be Jesus or will it be self? So there's multiple scriptures. Remember when David, sorry, sorry, Peter denies Christ? That's aperneomai. He aperneomai's, but he refuses Christ to preserve himself. Oh, that's not good. Okay, that, that's not what we want to be doing. In Acts, it says, but you denied, you aperneomied the Holy One and the just and desired a murderer to be granted unto you. They chose Barabbas instead of Jesus. And so when we choose self-preservation, when we choose the world instead of Jesus, it's just a bad thing. It's not the way we're supposed to aperneomide. But look at Luke 9. This is Jesus speaking. And he said to them all, if any man will come after me, let him aperneomai himself. Let him forsake, refuse himself to say, no, this isn't about you, Eric. This isn't about your reputation. This isn't about how you look in that arena full of uh, women. It's not about you being attractive. It's not about you being liked. It's about something greater than you. So if any man will come after him, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. The dying. It's more than just a refusal of riches. It's a very real death. It's not just giving up the things of this world. It's dying to them. When you die to something, you don't get it back. And there's certain things that you guys ever uh, studied the difference between a fast, you know, where you, okay, I'm not going to eat food today, and dying. When you surrender something, when you give up something, that doesn't mean you pick up the same thing the next day. You actually give it up. When we give up the world, when we die to these things, it's a significant thing in our life. We're saying, no, I'm not with that anymore. I'm walking this way. Whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. And whosoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. The moment you choose a cross is the moment you're choosing to be separate from the world. When you're carrying a cross, people don't want to touch you. 
You're, 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 you're one of those criminal types. You're, you're one of those. You're carrying a cross and people stand back from you. It's like, whoa, you're bearing the stigma there. Yeah, we don't want to be a part of that. Are you dead? It's a good question for all of us. So these are these fresh, precious, sweet reminders that we can all gather out of this Joshua Harris situation. Let's ask ourselves the question afresh. Are we refusing the world or are we choosing the world and refusing Jesus? You see, Joshua has refused Jesus so that he could choose the world. We need to exercise aperneomai and refuse the world in order to choose Jesus. If you're dead, you come up to a grave and dig out the body. I know it's a pretty disgusting illustration, but dig out the body, throw it on the ground, and then start yelling at it. Kick it. You know that it, it doesn't get offended? It doesn't respond back and shout back at you. Why? Because it's dead. I mean, we all know that, right? But then God says, are you dead? See, there's a part of you that wants to live. It wants to live for you. It wants to live for pleasure. It wants to live for the approval of the world. And God says, you need to let that part of you die so that the part I want to grow up, which is me in you, can flourish. As long as that's controlling you, you're going to have problems. But if you let it go, if you, if you let that come and die, wow, you can live. You can live abundantly. Can self still be offended if it's dead? Can self still be tempted? I mean, imagine if it's dead. You can tempt that dead body all day long and nothing's going to happen. Can self still be self-absorbed? Well, we know that we can be offended still because we've proven it, right? So there's that flicker of us. That's why we need to pick up our cross daily. We need to freshly rehearse this death every day. It's like, God, I'm dead today. I'm alive to you. This is how we wake up every day. We exercise the truth of God's kingdom. Why would anyone forsake the treasures in Egypt? I mean, if you had all of that world, I mean, it's funny because even Egypt is likened to the world. So when I say to give up the world, Egypt is the symbol of it. And Moses literally forsook the treasures of Egypt. Why would anyone do that? What could possibly lure someone to exchange earthly comforts for affliction? Esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. That is an extraordinary statement. And if we could take that statement from Hebrews and somehow cram it into our life and have the Holy Spirit fix our gaze on it where we see it, and we could say, so what about you? You can stick your name in there. What about you, Eric? Are you willing to forsake the treasures of Egypt for the affliction of Christ for the approach, reproach of Christ? What? The dunce cap? I could be popular over here. I could have money over here. I could have fame over here. Or I could wear the dunce cap. Who in their right mind is going to choose the dunce cap? Unless they see something bigger. It's not, the goal in life isn't to just be a fool. It isn't to just be an idiot. It isn't just to be stupid. It's to be with him. He is the reason we forsake all. Have you ever seen Jesus? Have you gotten to know Jesus? You see, I understand why Moses would do this. I understand why Christians throughout history have given up life so that they could have Jesus. I understand it because I've seen him. I know him. 
and I understand what would lead someone to do this. The dying to Egyptian treasure. I remember when I was growing up, a statement was, my dad said it to me. I had multiple uncles that said it to me. Eric, any college you want to go to, we'll make it happen. This is how I grew up. So then I had, I have differing uh, sides of the family that were vying to get me into different colleges. So I had one Ivy League side. That, you know, one of my uncles uh, went to uh, Yale and then his graduate school was at Harvard. So he took me on a tour of Ivy League colleges. And he was trying to make the pitch that I should go east. Ivy League, it's always the best foundation for life. And uh, I went on the mission field instead. I gave up that. It was, I mean, we're talking some of the hardest things in my life. I remember right before uh, I, I went uh, on the, the mission field, I had one last test, and it was from the other side of the family. And I remember uh, this one uncle who I have had such an admiration for, and he was, he's just, he's done extremely well in life, if I could say it that way, okay? He's done extremely well. That's an understatement. And he said, Eric, I think you'd make a great doctor. That's what I was studying for in, in college. But if you're interested, I'd like you to consider going into business with me. And so it's like, okay, so if the doctor thing doesn't work out, then ching, ching, I could go in here. It's like I have a lot here. I have a lot. And it turned out to be a lot more painful to have a lot. I have a lot to give up. And that was this tension inside of Eric Ludi. It's like, I have treasures of Egypt here. But I've seen Jesus. Now what do I do? Eric, if you leave college, you forsake your future. So now I feel called to go on the mission field. And this is what my uh, counselor, you know, the one over the pre-med program, told me. He's like, Eric, he gave me the parable of the talents. So he was even giving me the Christian uh, spin on it. Eric, if you do this, you're burying your talent. You could be a great doctor. Instead, you're going to throw it all to the wind. This is, this is the tension in my young soul. And, uh, you know, if you follow the history of my life, I gave it up. And if you look at me now, I'm not a doctor. What did I do? What an idiot Eric must be. Yeah, it's about sticking on a dunce cap. I remember having this clear moment. Leslie and I recognized that we had to choose a direction. And we, we had the potential to make a lot of money in writing books. And I remember, it was very distinct, I remember where we were. We were in Sheridan, Wyoming. We were just about to speak at an event and we had driven that whole way and we were talking about this and we were wrestling through it. We could be authors and make a career out of it. But if we make Jesus our message, in a sense, we're shooting our book career in the foot because it would limit our range of motion. You can only go so far as a Christian author, right? Especially one that speaks truth. But if we sort of hide it, if we cloak it and just sort of give Christianity through literature, but it's, it's like not direct, it's not in your face, we could, we could make a lot of money off of this. Well, so if you know all our books, you know that I shot, uh, we, we shot our book career in its foot. Why would anyone do that? Because there's something greater. There's something more magnificent than all of these things. The dying to self-importance. 
to become a true Christian means to exit the corridors of mainstream influence. Well, if I, if I hide my Christianity under a bushel, then I can have mainstream influence. But the moment you remove that bushel and start shining all bright, well, you lose your mainstream options. It means that my opinion is now an extreme position and not a common view. It means I am now one of those crazies with a narrow, biased, prejudiced perspective. It means the world no longer caters to me. To win my vote, they don't care about my vote. I'm the fringe now because I'm one of those Christians. Fringe. To please my palate, there is nothing out there that is trying to reach me because I'm fringe. And to make me feel at home in this world, I'm suddenly the lowly minority with ever-decreasing clout in the world's schematic, from politics to movie producing to music selection for background music in coffee shops. My view is considered fringe. Starbucks could care less about the fact that I hate their music. They don't care. They're going to do what they're doing because they're reaching the mainstream, not the fringe pastor. <laughs> I'm the kooky, wild-eyed guy that comes in and says, hey, guys, can we pick a better playlist? No. And they know that they're not going to lose but a blip uh, if I stopped going to Starbucks. It's like, come on. I'm fringe. The dying to the cool persona. I need to give up the swagger and the deep, bassy voice. The girls won't find me attractive. The guys won't consider me part of the brotherhood anymore. People may think I'm one of those homeschooler types. Eric, are you in? Uh, yes. So how, this is how I wanted to finish. Uh, I've shared this story multiple times in the past, and there's something that with, with the Joshua Harris situation that this came back to me uh, this week. And I want to say I was speaking at an event, a similar event where he was speaking, and... Um, this was part of my message. I'm not exactly sure if that's true, but that's what came to my mind uh, this week. And so there, this, is, this has always been a profound picture to me, and that is David. And I call this up on the screen. It says, following David to the cave. <clears throat> there's twos. You've heard me say this many times, but there's a first and a second. God rejects the first. He chooses the second. So all throughout the biblical history, you see this, Cain, Abel. Rejects Cain's offering, chooses Abel's offering. Ishmael, Isaac. He rejects Ishmael, Isaac is the seed. Uh, Esau, Jacob, firstborn, secondborn. Firstborn cannot please him, the secondborn is chosen. But then we get to the kingdom of Israel, what do we have? Saul, first king. David, second king. First king is rejected, Saul. Second king is a man after his own heart. And so we see, God, we see David as a picture of the Christ in, in a certain regard. He's, he's showcasing something. And yet, though David is anointed king, Saul doesn't step down from his throne. That's the season we're in right now. You know that Jesus is anointed king of kings and lord of lords? He is actually king of kings and lord of lords, but he's not recognized as such in this world. Soon... He will come in the clouds, and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord of the glory of God the Father. But meanwhile, people don't see it, but we do. See, we're like the mighties. The church of Jesus Christ is like the mighty men that leave everything. They leave Saul, and they come to be with David. But when they leave Saul, do you know that they're leaving the comforts of home behind? You know that they're deliberately choosing 
to be with the renegade? Do you know that where David lives, they live? Where does he live? In a cave, on the run, hunted, despised. You see, as long as Saul sits on that throne, if you stand with David, you are a traitor to the governmental systems of the earth. Well, who is going to side with David? That's a good question. But there were those that, that did. And when he entered into their, his kingdom, they entered into that strength with him. We're in a similar situation. <clears throat> Many of us have spent our entire life in Saul's care. And Saul has given us privileges. He's taking care of us. We have a little cottage uh, in, uh, in Israel. And it's a nice, cozy place. And we've never had any reason to complain. And why would we make a deal out of it? I mean, you've seen the wanted posters all over you know, town. You see the tree, and it has it pinned up on it. And it says, wanted, David. It has a little sketch of him. And uh, you know, it even has a reward. And Saul will pay you a reward if you could betray David and turn him in. However, you are not allowed to talk with David. You are not allowed to look at David. If David ever comes nearby, don't listen to him. He's a liar. He's a, uh, a fanatic. He's, he's you know, demon-possessed. They'll use whatever statements are necessary to cause you to think that David is the ultimate dunce. And you've never had any reason to question any of this. You've been fine. You have your nice little cottage. You have your nice cozy bed. It even has a tempur type of foam pad on top. You have a couch. You have a little coffee table. You have a little uh, dresser cabinet, you know, mirror behind it. You know, you have everything you could need. You're satisfied in life. Saul has taken good care of you. And, you know, I don't know. There's something about the past few months that you've been stirred. You've become discontent. You're not sure why, because nothing's really changed, but it was the way Saul spoke to you the other day. You came in and asked for a favor, and he shouted at you, threw a javelin at you. You know, you're like, what in the, what was that? And you came back like, hey, I'm sure it was just a bad day, but he did a couple other things. And you're recognizing an instability. You're, you're just questioning Saul's leadership over your life. Like, something's not exactly right. And, you know, he hasn't been you know, uh, shoveling the, the walk. You know, he used to have the governmental employees come down and shovel that. He's left it there, and now you've had to go out and work extra hard. It's like, what is this? And so you're a little discontent. Uh, you know, not, not the end of the world, right? But you're disturbed a little, which is causing you to question a few things. You know, you caught Saul lying the other day to you, and all it takes is catching Saul lie once, and you begin to realize, I wonder if he's lied twice, three times. I wonder if what he said about David is true. And so you hear this, some, someone's running through town, it's a big to-do, and they're saying, he's coming, he's coming, you know, lock your doors, batten down your windows, you know, he's coming. And so the way every house is set up in Israel is that you have these shutters on the inside that you can shut and lock in so you don't see anything on the outside. And if David and his, his mighties are ever coming through, you're not even allowed to look at them, guys. I don't even want you thinking about peeking and so David is supposedly coming through. That's the big to-do. He's coming, he's coming. Who's coming? David is coming. Oh, no, David is coming. The, the madman, the fanatic, the wild, crazy guy is coming, the dunce. And so you, you know, batten down your house, and you're safe in there, and then you hear some singing. At first, it's from a distance. It's this deep baritone, and other voices are chiming in. It's beautiful harmonies, manly voices. And it's getting closer. And it's strangely attractive to you. Because it is hitting something in your soul that has been missing and you didn't even know it was missing. 
It is a joy. It is a fervor. It is a peace. It is a life that you have never before heard. Never has it come forth out of Saul. Out of all of his kingdom, out of all of his workers, never have you heard a sound like that. And so you can't help yourself. You peek out of your shutters. And what do you see? You see David dancing in the streets, doing one of those Jewish dances, you know, he's swinging around, does a flip in the air. And then he lands, and he looks straight at you. And all you were doing was this, through the shutters, and he looks straight at you, winks and smiles. And you're like, huh! and you, you let go of the shutter, you're like, oh, no. You j- that was high treason, what you just did. I can't believe you just did that. And yet you can't get it out of your mind. I mean, it stunned you. It was personal to you. That man's not a madman. That man is more beautiful than anything I've ever seen in my life. The cheer, the joy, the life that is in him. I've never seen that before. And you're shaken to the core. You sit down on, your, on the side of your bed shaking. This is weird, I know. I can't really explain how it works, but you looked over at your, your dresser, and there's a note. It's like a letter sitting on top of your dresser. How did that get there? And yet you know exactly what it is. You can't explain how it got there, but it's there. And so you step towards it, shaking, knowing that you are committing high treason and even having that on your dresser, let alone reaching out and grabbing it, let alone breaking the seal, which is a lion of Judah. You break the seal and open it up. It's a personal letter written to you with your name on it from David. You know what David means in the Hebrew? The word ahava is love. If you stick a d on the front and a d on the end, what do you get? D, ahava, d. It means the loved, beloved, the one that loves, the one that is loved. Isn't that appropriate? Because he's a picture of Jesus. Yet he's the renegade. He's the crazy man. And yet here you are in the midst of your supposed comfort, questioning it all. Why would anyone give up the treasures of Saul? What does this say? Please, follow me. You can find me at the cave. This is your personal invitation from me. I would love you to spend your life with me. Your beloved, David. What do you do? What's funny is you know exactly what to do. You're going to forsake that little cottage, that cozy Tempur-Pedic foam mattress. You're going to forsake that couch. You're going to forsake that coffee table and that dresser. You're going to forsake the good opinion of Saul. Why? You found something so much more beautiful. And his name is Jesus Christ. And so how you found that cave, I'm not exactly sure, but you just start walking and guess what? The Holy Spirit leads you right to it. The mighty men stand out front. They're like, hey, who goes there? Ah, uh, I, I, I came to see David. Why would he want someone like you? I mean, you're all spindly. Could you even know how to swing a sword? No, I never held one in my life. Why would he want you? You dig in your pocket. He invited me. He invited you? <laughs> Can't you just imagine? If anyone was going to just be blunt, honest, that's exactly what the thought would be. He wants you? According to this. He wants me. They're like, let me see it. And then this booming voice comes in from behind the mighties. Let him through. I chose him. I called him. You have been chosen. You have been called by the most high God, the beloved himself. 
The treasures of Saul are nothing in comparison with the presence of Jesus Christ. You know where you get to sleep tonight? In a cave. You have a rock for a pillow. Yeah, it's called Christianity. This side of eternity. Yep, not as cozy as the world can offer. However, he says, he you sleep right here. And you know what he does all night? He paces in his cave, watching over his mighties as they sleep. And he sings those Jewish songs. I don't know what they sound like, but they're, they're beautiful. And so he's ministering to them. And even in the night, you pop awake. Like, <laughs> and he looks down and he touches your head and he goes, go back to sleep. Everything's all right. And you wake up in the morning. Get this. You wake up in the morning and he's kneeling down. And he's like, good morning. You ready to go fight some battles today with me? Let me teach you how to swing a sword. Even if all eternity was a cave, if he is there, it's worth it. Wherever he is is where we want to be. So right now, the dunce cap has been trampled publicly. I want each one of us to deliberately choose to reach down, grab it, brush it off, and stick it on our heads proudly. I am with Jesus, come what may. Father, you are worth it. You are worthy. You are deserving of everything we have, everything we are. And Lord, I pray that as the church of Jesus Christ, we would freshly forsake everything that this world has to offer and choose you. Lord, we love you and we trust you. Amen. Daily Thunder is a production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training and the Bravehearted Media Group. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and see it once again gain the stride of the Spirit emboldened and brave. The Daily Thunder video stream can be watched live daily at 8.15 a.m. Mountain Time, Monday through Saturday, and 7.15 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Join us at live.ellerslie.com. Please consider booking a stopover at the lovely Ellerslie campus at the foot of the majestic Rocky Mountains for one day, one week, one semester, or for an entire season. We hope to see you someday soon live and in person. Thanks for listening.